Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes. And we're back on a Wednesday for the first time in a couple of weeks with our regular podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying our Friday Revelation podcast. We had uh, last Friday, number 12, this upcoming Friday will be number 13, our final Revelation Questions podcast. So there's still time to get questions in if you have those, and we will record those. Uh, we'll, we'll answer those on the recording on Friday. You know, I haven't been on a Wednesday podcast with you for a little bit, but I do want to say if, if our listeners haven't heard you uh, and Dr. Ben talking about the return of the God hypothesis. That was a three-part discussion. That was really rich. That was a fun one to do. And uh, the book we we're discussing, Stephen Meyer's book, Return of the God Hypothesis, just fascinating. Technical, really brilliant, very compelling. Uh, it was fun to discuss that one. And of course, always good to have Ben Williams on the podcast and uh, his expertise in that area. Well, and I have that book, Cole, and I have not yet read it. It's in my stack, and I noticed it's about three inches thick, and I thought, three podcasts? Pretty good way to understand that book. So you may have yeah. saved some of us from reading the entire book. I mean, we're hitting about 150 pages per episode there, so that's pretty yeah. good. For 30 or 40 <laughs> minutes of your time, that's pretty good. Exactly. Unless you're a super speed reader. So we're, we're coming back in this episode to a series we've been doing on difficult texts, and this morning, we're not doing a difficult text as much as we're doing uh, a difficult question, a difficult issue. Right. We've gotten different forms of this question. Uh, and I would just say pastorally, this is a question that we get very often because uh, it's something that everyone's wondered at one point or another. And so the question basically is, how were people in the Old Testament saved? How are people before Christ saved? And I'll flesh it out this way. If we are saved through faith in Christ, how were you saved before Christ had died and risen from the dead? So how could you have faith in Christ before Christ? Um, and specifically, all the people that are talked about in the Old Testament, everybody that lived before the first century, what about all those people? So I'll kick it over to you. Why do you think this is a difficult question? Yeah, that's a good point. This is a big, broad question. And you're right, it comes up just perennially. Now, I know that the people who ask this aren't asking for themselves, obviously. We know what we need to do to be saved. So it's not a primary question of, you know, this is going to affect my salvation, or this is in some way going to keep me from doing what I need to do. But it is an interesting question as you dive into the scriptures. And so I think it's a difficult question because when we sit in this covenant of grace, the quote, new covenant, new testament under which we live, and we think, first of all, we don't want to think that everyone who lived before Christ will not be in heaven, will fail to get to heaven, because unfortunately, you were born at the wrong time. And it turns out that that's uh, that's okay, because the scripture doesn't teach that either. But then we wonder, well, but then how can you? You know, in other words, what would be the basis for which you are judged. And you know, and I know both, that there are a lot of different ideas on this, but let me start the ball rolling by saying this. There's something through the scriptures, and I want to introduce this idea of faithfulness, of trusting in God. Now, we understand it as you're saved by grace through faith or trust in Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice. But faithfulness is all over the scriptures well before Christ comes along. You have the uh, faithfulness of Abraham. You know, Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A uh, long time later in the book of Habakkuk, the righteous one will live by faith. 
or the righteous person will be faithful. So let me just stop there and, and say maybe as we explore this idea, one way to get a wedge into this difficult question is that the idea of faithfulness isn't just a New Testament idea. So what do you think about that, Cole? Well, I think the easy thing in, in this question to do is to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. Sometimes mm -hmm. you see people doing this in terms of God. Sometimes it's works in the Old Testament, faith in the New Testament, law in the Old Testament, right. grace in the New Testament. And that's an easy thing to do, but it's a not a very biblical thing to do. So what you're saying is, is a more accurate picture of what the Bible describes. You can actually find people living by faith throughout the entire Bible. And that's where we locate uh, the source of salvation. The salvation is by faith from beginning to end. But it looks different in different periods of the Bible. And That's a key uh, observation, very key observation. With certain people groups, it looks very different, too. So you have a people group like the Jews who have revelation from God. We can mm -hmm. kind of wrap our minds around, and we'll talk more about their faith later, but we can kind of wrap our minds around what faith would look like for the Jews. But what about a group of people who live on an island somewhere off, disconnected, have never had the Bible come to them, have never had experience of a person who knew God? They are animists and pantheists, and they just believe whatever has made sense to them. How can we really say that they could have faith? And the flip side of that being, how could we say that they are condemned when they've never heard? And that's another question that makes this a difficult issue. Yeah, I agree with that. And a couple of, I would say two things to that, but let me just pick one of them and go that direction. And that is the fact that they don't know the name of the creator of this universe. Let's just start right there. And that's what's really the, the case, because Romans 1 is going to argue uh, that Every person, regardless of what you know, know there's a God. Let me just read Romans 1.20. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Just talking about people in general of all time. Because God has made it, made it plain to them. His invisible attributes, namely his power and divine nature. I mean, look at a tornado. Look at a thunderstorm when you're in a pre-technological uh, civilization. Those things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And what's Paul saying? He's saying, you may not know the name of God, and you may certainly not know about Jesus Christ, but there's no human being that's ever lived that hasn't looked at this place and go, wow, who made this? There is no civilization, anthropologically speaking, that doesn't have gods. What does that tell us? It tells us that people say, somebody made this. So just stop right there. So everybody knows there's a God, whether they know his name or not. What do you do with that? Well, Romans goes on to say that every one of us made an exchange, and it repeats it three times. It says we exchange the glory of God for created things. Think idolatry. Think instead of worshiping, even if I don't know his name, I know there is someone who made this. Every human being has always thought that. Instead, I say, well, but I think I'm going to worship this stone idol, or I think I'm going to worship the sun god, or I think I'm going to, or I'm going to worship money, or you know, we, we worship many things. We fundamentally made an exchange. So let me stop there and kick it back to you and say, I, I would say, first of all, the first part of the answer to that would be, 
everyone everywhere knows there's a higher power, a transcendent designer, if you will. And do they acknowledge that or do they not acknowledge that? Perhaps that's a key question to ask. It gets down to the reality that there are no people, as Paul said, there's no one without excuse. Uh, you get the sense sometimes that you have an innocent group of people. They don't know God. Their problem is nobody has told them. That That is certainly an issue. That's why we're doing world missions. But mm-hmm. it's it's not an issue that they can therefore not know God. There are certainly places all over the Bible that teach, as you brought up in Romans 1, we have been hardwired to know and to recognize God through his creation. Ecclesiastes says eternity is written on the heart of every person. Mm-hmm. The, the issue then would be, is there saving knowledge in that natural revelation? Uh, most of the time we would say, no, there's not saving knowledge in the work of Jesus Christ in nature. You're not going to look at trees and stars in the night sky and say, there must've been a savior who came and died for me. But what Paul's getting at is actually more fundamental than that. God's attributes, the creator, the worship that is due to him is the starting point for human reality. We all are capable of discovering that through the world, through our conscience. And uh, so if we deny that very thing, then we are denying even what we do have in a relationship with God. And Paul goes further than that. All sin is suppression of the truth. Sin is right. the suppression of the way God made the world. But most acutely, sin is the refusal to worship and honor God and the choice to worship and honor other things besides God. That's a great point. Let me give you a biblical example, and that would be Job. Think about who Job is. First of all, he's living before the time of Moses, so he's before the whole law of Moses and that covenant. He's not of the lineage of Abraham. He's not an Israelite, and yet here he is acknowledging God. Now, he doesn't worship God in the sense that you and I, he doesn't go to church, obviously. I'm being silly, but you get the point. He isn't doing sacrifices like Moses said. He is basically acknowledging there is a creator named God, and I will worship that God. So there's a great example of someone who doesn't know any of this that we know, and yet God calls him a righteous person. Why? Because he acknowledges God and he worships God without ever knowing the law of Moses or Christ. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good example of what you're saying. Yeah, Job's an interesting case because of that, uh, and it's something similar to the argument that Paul's going to make about the law later is that you have people outside the law, namely Abraham, who was born before the law, who is counted righteous because of his faith. And Job is a righteous man, not because he's not just because he's morally upright, but because he is trusting in what he knows about God. Mm-hmm. And you, you do remember, though, in the beginning of the book of Job, he's off, he's making offerings for his kids just in case they had sinned. And it's kind of interesting not being under the law of Moses. He, because of his relationship with God, because of his trust in God, he has a sense of how you might approach God in worship, which is interesting. And uh, he has a sense of the honor of God, how to worship God. And I think there's something to that because we we might say, okay, so you have a tribal person who's never heard of God. They don't even have the right name for God. They just have a sense 
that there's a creator out there and they begin worshiping him. Where does that get you? Well, I truly think if when that happens, God draws near to those people and begins to reveal things to right. them about mm-hmm. himself. And uh, we wouldn't consider it, you know, e- extra biblical revelation, but we would consider it in the heart, the Holy Spirit working in the heart uh, to bring those people into a closer relationship with him. And so I think maybe that's what we see in the book of Job is he yeah. honors the creator in what he can see. And God begins to show him other things uh, through his conscience, through the fact that we're all wired in a way to worship God. Through also, if you think about it, if you go back far enough, there shouldn't be anybody who doesn't know some rudimentary things about God other than the fact that there's a break in the chain. So if everybody's descended from Adam and Eve, yeah, Adam and Eve know God. Pretty quickly, you realize there are people who don't know God. Uh, then you have Seth calling upon the name of the Lord and people in his day calling upon the name of the Lord. So you have these revivals, of, but there, there shouldn't be anyone who doesn't know anything about the creator, even from the fact that it all ha- we all have the same origin. That should have been passed down. And even though it isn't in certain cases, uh, we know that certain people groups still preserve very, very old traditions that probably point back to uh, the worship of the one true God. And the, the difficulty there comes in, what about people now, if we've, if we've accounted for those people, they need to believe what they know about God. They need to trust in his promises. They need to worship him as the creator. What about people maybe who are under the law? What about people like Abraham who know a little bit more, who have encountered God? How are those people saved in the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, I think the principle you just gave us is one I would run with for a moment, and that is Abraham was faithful in what he knew about God. Moses, Paul, says that as according to legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. What he meant, what he meant was that I did what the law said. He didn't say I didn't sin. I was sinless. He simply said, I obeyed the law. And so, in other words, he was faithful. But then he'll quickly say to you, but the law couldn't save me. But my point is, is that he did. He was faithful in what he was given, and he was faithful with what he knew. And so one of the ways to look at this, Cole, is, and here's a Jewish way of looking at it. They said, Think back before the time of Christ or Orthodox Jews today, that the Jewish people are special and God gave them 613 laws, the the law of Moses, and they're accountable for that. And that's what they do. All the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they aren't that good, but God gave them seven rules, the Noahide covenant, all the way back right after the flood. God laid out seven rules, and they're pretty basic, like don't murder, don't be sexually immoral, etc. And so their view is you'll be judged by the set of rules that God has laid down for you. But let me take this a different direction and ask you a question. That sort of presupposes, and this is a Jewish belief, that even the Gentiles who haven't had a direct revelation from God like the Jews have uh, through Moses, even they know certain things, these seven things they would say, that we have a sense of when justice isn't being done. We have a sense that murder is wrong. And it makes me want to ask the question, do you think the Bible teaches that there is something written on the heart of all people of all times, regardless of their knowledge of God? There's something about being human and created in the image of God 
that we know sin at its most rudimentary level when we go against some of the things that are hardwired into us. What do you think about that idea? I think that's true. I think that back to Romans 1, I think while we do know those things, they can be suppressed. And so you do, you know, people make the argument, well, then why, how do you have things like cannibalism or child sacrifice or things like that, which are clearly wrong? Well, they are clearly wrong. And I think originally people do know that they're wrong. I think it takes suppression of the truth to do those things. Uh, but it, it, but it, clear, people clearly are, are, it's possible for them to suppress the truth to where you have a culture-wide embrace of things that are wrong. Uh, but th- but th- this is essentially the argument that Paul is making in Romans. You have Jews during his day saying, you know, only Jews can really be saved because you have to be circumcised right. and you have to follow the right. law and you have to you do the dietary restrictions. And so Paul takes this head on and says, well, it can't be that circumcision is what saves. It can't be that the law is what saves because everybody would admit that Abraham is saved. and he was saved before he did either of those things. He didn't even have the law, but he was saved before the covenant of circumcision. So Paul goes back in Romans chapter four and says, Abraham was justified by faith. What does the scripture say? He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis chapter 15, verse six. So it was Abraham's faith, not his works, not his circumcision that saved him. And he was a pagan. You know, you got to remember Abraham was uh, he he was kind of your garden variety, polytheistic, maybe a moon god worshiper until God called him to leave and worship the one true God. And Paul says, so you can take a guy like that. He has faith in the promises of God and he's saved. It's credited to him as righteousness. There's a huge continuity then between the way someone like Abraham was saved, someone like Moses was saved, and someone now would be saved. Uh, They are trusting in the promises of God. The difference would be Abraham doesn't know the specific details of how God is going to fulfill his promise. Although after the whole thing, sacrificing his son, Isaac, and God providing the sacrifice for him, he got a pretty good picture of what that was like. I mean, uh, even in the New Testament, we see that in those moments, he sees the future salvation that God will bring about through Jesus. But even if he doesn't know that his name is Jesus, even if he doesn't know that he's going to live, you know, however many years in the future and die on a cross, he's trusting that God is going to fulfill his promises and his faith in God is what saves him. That's true under the law. And it's true for anybody who has the knowledge of God just like it would be true for somebody today who believes in the promises of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right. Well, you know, here's uh, th- that leads me to on to something that uh, it's getting it down to a pretty basic level and pretty, and this may be oversimplifying it, but what do you think about the idea that the death of Christ, that everyone is actually saved by grace through faith, in Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Because the people that lived before Christ didn't know who he was. But the sense that the death of Christ on the cross, his he paid for the sins of all who had faith. And I don't like to use the word retroactive with God because I don't think God lives in linear time. But let me just say, 
What do you think about the simplistic statement that the that the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross retroactively saved all through their faith in God? Uh, and it doesn't uh, really depend as much on, certainly doesn't depend on behavior. You know, so obviously Jews were going to behave much better than some of the, you know, much more what we call morally. But it's the faith. That's the key. And the blood of Christ covers all those who have had faith. And so mm-hmm. do, you, do you see a sense in which the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is also, quote, retroactive? Yeah, I think that the Bible is pretty clear that all the saving that happens happens through Christ and through his death on behalf of sin. Because the problem still is sin at the end of the day. The, the, right. the problem is not just unbelief. The problem is sin. Sin is what sends you to hell. Sin is what keeps you from God. Faith is what links you to Christ so that his death covers for your sin. And so there is no other atonement uh, outside of Jesus. So even the people that are doing the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, that is almost just like an IOU payment when the true sacrifice occurs, which will actually pay for their sin. So yes, I think we can confidently say there is no one who is saved before, during, after Jesus' death and resurrection, who is not saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of their sin. Exactly. And that, you know, that linking back to something you said earlier is why Paul can say in Romans that no one is going to be saved through the law. Now, be careful here because being faithful to God by observing the law is a good thing, but observing the law in itself, like you said, that is not going to pay for your sins, but it's the faithfulness of the act that is true for Abraham before the law, Moses with the law, and the Gentiles without the law. As Paul says that when the Gentiles who have no law act according to the law, and what I mean by that is they are faithful to God, it's as though they're writing a law. So, and when he starts to make that argument about even though the law is a good thing, you need to obey it. Jesus said, I'm fulfilling the law. I'm not abolishing it. So the law is a good thing, but it's not the law. It's not the conduct that saves you. It's the faithfulness in your circumstances. Yeah, well, it's your trust in right. Christ. It's it's the faith that you have in Christ. So I, one of the complicating passages here in the New Testament is in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter, almost in an offhanded remark, says, you know, and Jesus, after he died, went and preached to the spirits who'd been in prison since the time of Noah. What, what do you think that passage means, and what does that add to the discussion here? You know, now we're getting a little cryptic, and, and I'm going to move into the area of opinion. Everything we've said thus far, I think, is really prescripturally bounded. This is just so uh, unclear that it's hard to be very dogmatic. But I think that there is a sense in which the good news about Jesus has been proclaimed even to those who are dead, all the people we're talking about, people that lived before Christ. And it's almost as though, perhaps, and again, I'm, I'm speaking in opinion, and you can feel free to disagree. It's almost like the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, there was an announcement made in the afterworld 
saying, Jesus Christ has died and the sins of all the faithful people are wiped out. In some sense, this good news applied to people that lived before Christ. That may not be a great way to think of that passage, but that's the sense that I get from it. Yeah, I, I think there's, you hear sometimes people talk about this passage like everybody who died before Jesus is kind of in a holding area and Jesus comes yeah. down and gives, you know, just one heck of a sermon. And if you respond to that sermon, this is your chance and you can go to heaven. Yeah. But if you don't, then you're not. I tend to think that's not really what this passage is talking about. I, I don't think anyone is making post-death decisions for Christ, right. whether you died before or after Christ. I think what's happening is much more similar to what you're saying. There is an announcement from Christ of what has been done that is the fulfillment of what people had been believing in and hoping in. Their and trust. that yeah. is their salvation. So in that sense, they're saved through Christ. But it's the announcement of the fulfillment of the promises that Christ is doing. Now, there's some people that are even uncomfortable with that. They actually just don't want there to be Jesus talking to dead people at all in this passage, which I think is relatively hard to avoid. And so mm -hmm. some guys, some reform guys take this position. It's not the risen Christ, and it's not the dead Christ, you know, in the tomb, he's preaching in right. hell or something like that. It's it's not that. It's that Christ through his death and resurrection is now preaching through the Holy Spirit, but it was happening back in the days of Noah. Uh -huh. I find that very difficult to believe that that's what Peter was referring to is that somehow yeah. the risen Christ before he is risen through the spirit preaching to people in Noah's day. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think it's easier to read it as he's proclaiming freedom to the captives right. who have right. believed and who are now seeing their faith become sight. I, I think that's maybe the best way to read that passage. Yeah, that requires a little less gymnastics to just read it in that sense. And by the way, it seems like the creed, uh, I may be wrong about this, but it's it's always struck me that the creed, you know, he was uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate, he descended into hell is that idea of the descent of Christ into the land of the dead picks up this same idea. Yeah, and people stumble over that too, is what does it mean that he descended into hell? Did Jesus go to hell or was he just visiting? Was he borrowing a room? You know, I mean, what, what was going on here? And some of this is the linguistic elements of right. uh of the way we talk about hell, what what does he mean here? Is this the eternal hell, or is this kind of the Hades idea of the realm right. of the dead? I think if we go back to this again, this is in First Peter three verses eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then he goes in and talks about baptism. Right. So you can see how he, in the, in spirit, people think maybe, okay, that's the Holy Spirit working in the days of Noah. But, but I think this clearly is talking about uh, after Jesus has died. Now, we've got an episode on the soul sleep idea that time in the realm of right. death is not always the same as time here. And I think that's probably at play in that you right. have people who before Christ are now being raised 
through the death of Christ. And and God is taking care of applying that on both sides. The troubling thing here is those who are disobedient. I wonder if the same proclamation, we see this in the New Testament sometimes, the same proclamation of the gospel can lead to life for some and death for others. The proclamation of the gospel is at once a proclamation of life and of death, of freedom and of judgment. So you have the people who were disobedient in the days of Noah who are being, you know, the gospel is proclaimed to them. It's a message of judgment for them. And the people who trusted in God from that time on or that time previous, it is Mm -hmm. a message of life in the gospel. Right. You know, one of the things that puts the exclamation point on this for me is let's just zooming out, if you will, because I, I think that our exegesis of passages and our explanation of hard questions like this need to square also with the larger narrative of Scripture, the larger theme of Scripture. And the idea that we've been talking about is that you, you're not judged based on your different sets of deeds. You're fundamentally saved and uh, rescued by the sacrifice of Christ to all who have been faithful. That just faithfulness looks different depending on the different ages in which you live. I find that to be very persuasive in a macro level for this reason. Paul says that through one man, Adam, came death, and through one man, Christ, came life. It's going to be hard. I mean, to me, that just plainly says, in some sense, one way or another, everyone who's saved is saved through Christ. And I realize that presents a problem. Say, well, but wait a minute. Some of those people lived before Christ. So you you have to see that what Paul's talking about at that answer has to be more than just, well, did you live according to the uh, to the New Testament, but you didn't even know the New Testament? That's kind of just puts that to the side and says... If you're saved by grace through faith, it's the blood of Christ that saves everyone of all time. And I think that's how the scriptures can say, through Adam came death and through Christ came life, is it Mm -hmm. sort of ties this idea together to me that you can't have a salvation not through Christ before he got here and through Christ after he got here. I Mm -hmm. I think you're going to have to rule that out. Yeah, to go back to where Paul says, not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham. Not all descendants of Abraham are spiritual descendants of Abraham. I think what we say is not all died in Adam, all live in Christ. It's all who are in Adam die eternally. And all who are in Christ live eternally. And so not all children of Adam are children of Adam. Some are children of Christ, not children, but some some are in Christ, children of God. Um. And so by putting it that way, what we're saying is all who are in Christ are saved, whether they're New Testament, Old Testament, in between, the thief on the cross, everybody who's saved is in Christ. Everybody else and everybody starts out in Adam, but then we have been brought over into Christ and have found salvation in him. Like, Like we see in Acts, there is no name under heaven under which to be saved other than Jesus Christ. One mediator, one one way to be saved, no matter when you lived. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think that that's the only way you can really make sense of this, answer this question with any sense that uh, preserves the narrative of the Bible and the themes of the Bible. And remembering the idea that we think time is a big deal. God doesn't think time is a big deal. God thinks faithfulness is a big deal. Time's not a problem for God. 
Faithfulness is the currency of God. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.